You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Whitley Strieber is the author of The Hunger, The Wolfen, The Night Church, Communion, and The Greys. His newest book is 2012, The War for Souls. Thank you for joining me, Whitley. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. Whitley, one of the things that interests me the most about this book is the premise behind it is the science of the soul, something we don't know very much about, at least on our world. Well, do we even have souls? That would be the, the first question to ask, I think, and I don't know that it's really answerable by, by science, but this is a work of fiction, so in this work of fiction, we do. Could you talk a little bit about um, some of the uh, nonfiction basis of what you're writing in, in this book? Well, yes. The, I think the most interesting thing, nonfiction basis sort of emerged after the book was written I was speculating about whether or not parallel universes could exist in the book. There are three parallel universes in the book, all right here in the same space, but all uh, 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 decoupled from one another, I believe is the term used in physics. And after the book came out, in fact, it was last September, a group of mathematicians at Oxford came out with with a... paper showing mathematically that parallel universes must be physically real and supporting David Deutsch's work in physics uh, that suggests the same thing. And it, it seemed quite fantastic, and it made me wonder a little bit about the, the synergy between the mind and, and reality, because if if parallel universes are physically real, then there must be any number of ideations of this book in other parallel universes. And perhaps I got the idea from myself somehow in a moment of continuity between parallel universes, and the book comes from me in one of the other universes. And uh, uh, and the other thing is that it's not clear that they would necessarily be unfolding in the same time frames. So perhaps I went back in a parallel universe where they have mastered time travel and told myself this story. <laughs> uh, and that is indeed part of the plot of this book. The structure of this book, I think, is really very interesting and ra- rather metafictional. You use a lot of interesting literary techniques in this book. Could you talk about developing those literary techniques and making, well, layering them out the way you do? If you are going to write a book about parallel universes, one of which is radically different, I must admit, from the other two, so that was relatively easy. But the other two are not so different from each other. In fact, the whole point of the story is they're quite similar. You're going to pull out every literary trick out of your hat that you can in order to get that across. Even typefaces finally had to come into it. I was disappointed to learn from the publisher because they kept losing track of which universe they were in. 
I'm still not convinced my readers would, and uh, Faulkner, I know, was dying to publish The Sound and the Fury in a bunch of different typefaces and colors. I just wanted one typeface, but I got more than I got two or three, I think, in here. Uh, as, as the novel starts uh, in a universe that seems fairly similar to ours, pretty yes. much like ours, uh, one of the things that you talk about is archaeology technology and all the the dubious nature of this. And I think this is a theme that uh, kind of uh, percolates throughout the book because we, every uh, generation, thinks that they have the ultimate technology for archaeology, whether it's carbon dating, whether it's a spade and a shovel or whatever it is. We always think we've got this technology that's really going to work that will right. enable us to understand the past. And those things e e just fall by the wayside, don't they? Well, we are present-centric. We always think that the present moment is the pinnacle. However, uh, if we look back into the past, at some of the engineering achievements of the past, it's obvious that we were once able to do things more effect certain things more effectively than we do them now. And yet, at the same time, we want to see the world in terms of a continuity, historically especially, uh, where there is, it, it starts with kind of the discovery of agriculture uh, about 15,000 years ago. And then it moves in a continuous line up through one technological advance after another, at first quite slowly, and then on a rising a tide to the magnificent present. It's the carousel of progress. Right. However, uh, it doesn't actually look like that. It looks more like a, like a chart of, uh, of a stock's price rising and falling over the, over the years or eons. And there's also a profound oscillation in human affairs that's related to the weather that we don't recognize the existence of at all. And because what we, one of the things we don't like to look at is the fact that we are controlled entirely by climate. Uh, mankind is controlled by the climate. And we don't like to think of that because we like to think of ourselves as being beyond all of that. We're just going to burn more stuff if the climate is inconvenient to us or uh, we'll do something, find some way out. There isn't any way out. Human life is centered around climate. And, you know, there was a wonderful book uh, uh, called The Mediterranean in the Age of Philip II by Ferdinand Braudel that uh, I read with incredibly great interest because he relates climate to uh, to uh, uh, the, the evolution of empire and civilization in that book so brilliantly and su in such extraordinary detail. Uh, however, in my own look at the looking at the past, I don't think that we are necessarily the height of civilization at this time. I think that n not necessarily there was a greater civilization in the past by no means, but there are certain things that were done in the past very much more effectively than they're done now. And working with stone is a good example. You look at the big platforms at Baalbek in Lebanon, and we see that where the huge multi-ton stones were taken from and where they went and where they were placed. But we haven't the faintest idea how they might have been moved with the tools that we believe were available then. So how were they moved? 
Well, this brings me to the sacred sites in your book. The sacred sites that are, your novel begins. With, yes. Uh, 2012, we're talking about now, uh, with a series of sacred sites. There were 14 of them. In, in, right. And could you talk about selecting those sacred sites? How well, I selected them simply because they're all on the same parallel around the planet. Every single one of them. If you, if you, if you flatten out a map of the Earth and you draw a line between all of these sacred sites around the planet, all evolving at different times in history, the line is straight because they're all in the same parallel. But why? We have no idea. I, I, of course, in my book, confabulate some ideas. Maybe they're right. Who knows? Uh, or maybe entertaining. In a, well, certainly in another <laughs> parallel universe, if if uh, the many worlds theory is correct, they they must be right. I must be right. And so, in, in fact, this is a true story. It, 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 someone who 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 is devoted to the theory of parallel universes would say that all novels are true stories. They must be somewhere. <laughs> One of the things I really like about this and, and many of your books is I think you do a good job of bringing up to date the, the work of H.P. Lovecraft. And I think that there's a lot of Lovecraftian influences oh, in your work. There's a lot of Lovecraftian influences in my work. I, I, when I was a boy, I absolutely delighted in H.P. Lovecraft's work. I read it, it just really, really thrilled me. And I've written, in fact... Oh, years ago, Bob Block and I were, we had dinner a couple times and, and, and did a lot of drawing together. And we were talking about Lovecraft, and he pointed out that Love, there had never been a complete novel written in the Lovecraft world. And we made a bet. Uh, could it be done? And I said, I would do it. And I did it. I wrote a book called The Forbidden Zone, which is in Lovecraftian. It's dedicated to Lovecraft, and it's about the old ones coming up out of the depths of the earth. And what is so fascinating about the whole concept of Lovecraft's old ones who come from a kind of misbegotten, failed evolution from before our ideation even came onto the earth is that the earth is so much older than life. And this means it could be that another entirely different expression of life has come and gone on this old planet and been completely stripped off of it before the first living creatures in the present expression of life even existed. And, you know, at the, at, the, at the close of the Permian, almost all life was eradicated from this planet by a, 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 a natural phenomena which are now obscure because of the vast amount of time that's passed. It was a much more aggressive uh, extinction than the one that, that closed the period of the dinosaurs 65 million years ago. So it could be that every once in a while the planet is entirely sterilized. And in the Forbidden Zone, as in Lovecraft, these creatures realizing that their world is ending are sending their tentacled claws through time into the future to try to project their reality into ours across the bridge of time and so survive. 
Anyway, I told Stephen King a story at dinner, the one time I've ever had dinner with him, about my dad tossing all of my EC comics out the window back in the early 50s. And that showed up at the beginning of Creepshow, and I've never sh been sure whether he, he, it was, you know, whether it came from my story or not. If it did, I would be delighted. But uh, I loved those old horror comics. I, you know, I guess there's, a, there's an anarchic strain in certain people, a willingness to test the edge, and an, I, have find, I find fear entertaining. I find it very entertaining. Um, Embracing, too. I mean, in it, a sense, yeah. It's a way to uh, get out of your comfort zone. Well, that's right. And it, 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 I've never been interested in comfort zones. I don't believe in this is fiction aside, in reality as we see it. I don't, I think that the mind is assembling the world in a certain way and looking at it in a certain way and that it is perhaps on an objective level a very different place than what it seems to us. Uh, that we filter, that basically the brain is a filtration mechanism that filters out so much of what's real. And I've come knocking up against the edges of that reality at different times in my life. And the the, the intensity with which this, the culture has tried to pull me back, especially after I wrote communion with all the yelling and screaming about how it couldn't possibly be true, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That intensity told me more than anything that there was some truth in it. And whatever it was, it was a truth that we dared not face directly. And I thought, you know, as a fiction writer and as someone who is interested in horror, what the final objective reality of what happened to me was, I don't know. But I do know that it struck such a chord and, and so many people reacted to it in such a negative way that it had to be good. <laughs> it had to be worth doing, whatever it was. And I, I ended up dealing with that and having those little beings in my life for 11 years. And I've never really written much more. I've read a couple books about it, but I got tired of the sort of opprobrium and the constant jokes and the fear that I generated. I was actually scaring people. People were frightened of me. And so I, I shifted to fiction. And I, I wrote a couple of horror novels that were kind of riffs on the various things that I had seen. And, and then I, in terms of fiction, I really got down to it with the greys. And uh, I wrote about the experience as I had actually known it, but all is si simply as fiction, and just written as fiction. Could you talk about that process of converting what you feel to be real into yeah. and presenting it into fiction so sure, that it's just, more acceptable? Yeah, you just uh, take your life experiences and write them uh, around an, uh, a fictional character, and it becomes fiction. It's quite simple. <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing to it. And in, in the greys, of course, and, and, you know, there's plenty of imagination. I'm not saying that every word of the greys is true by any means. It's not. A lot of it is made up. But a lot of it is also true. And I'm not going to say which is which. Your new book, you 
take a stab at some. Uh, it's really fun. You have a, a character named Wiley Dale. Yes. <clears throat> and uh, I think that this is your vision of other people's vision of you. I don't. I think it's my wife's vision of me, Wiley Dale. I think I built Wiley Dale out of Anne's response to me, <laughs> and certainly uh, 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 she is in the book as his wife, and I am. Um, I am a difficult, obsessive man when I get into, into some of these pickles I get myself into with whatever may, whatever breach of reality may occur or breach of confidence or attack may take place in the media or once in a while I'll draw one of these, uh, one of these, what are these people called that lurk around and hide in, you know, in your neighborhood and stuff, uh, stalkers, yes, yes, yes. And I, I have a tendency to get into trouble, and, and she's always, always dragging me out of it or trying to. Uh, I, I really like this Wiley Dale character. Well, thank you. And he's, he's really a lot of fun. And it's interesting to, in, to see you kind of uh, take yourself to task and make fun of yourself. And, and the, this book, I think, is, is for a book that involves, you know, the destruction of three planets and... Than many tortured souls. and uh, Yes. Uh, it's really funny. <laughs> well, it's meant to be. It's meant to have a sense of humor. Um, <clears throat> there's nothing funnier than the destruction of entire planets. It just depends on your point of view. I mean, assuming you're not on one, which Wiley Dale isn't, his survives, uh, sort of ours survives. And in fact, I believe the story ends with, a, with an NPR news report uh, on December the 22nd, 2012, after he and his family have been through this utterly fantastic experience. And there's the news saying, well, it's December the 22nd, 2012, and guess what? Nothing much happened. I love things like that. As a, a writer, one of the things that, that interests me is that you've chosen to um, take some of the... Use some of the Take the, the motifs, the patterns, and the content of religions, of folklore, and then run them through a kind of science fiction filter to turn them into a, a science fiction experience. The reason for that is that when I look at things like Egyptian, ancient Egyptian culture and the history of ancient Egypt as we know it, I see what everyone else sees that the most highly developed engineering comes early, not late, early. It's early, much earlier. The more, the, the more primitive pyramids are the more recent ones. And one asks oneself, why would that be? Is there something missing from this picture? And I thought to myself, imagining and working through as best I could what an actual ritual process would have been in ancient Egypt. And I have to tell you, the thing that came closest in my mind was the ritual process involving cargo cults in New Guinea, much more than a, 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 a series of religious rituals that evolved over time. It's like they were imitating somebody, but they no longer knew why. And, you know, the story of the cargo cults is quite simple. Uh, there are still, I suppose, people believe in the cargo cults. There was even a member of the uh, 
Australian Parliament, who was a cargo cult, uh, who, uh, mem- a person who worshipped the back page of a Agatha Christie novel. Um, you know, Australia is a great place. They had room in their Parliament for for him. In any case, that, that was some years ago. I don't know if he's still still there. In any case, when people in New Guinea who had never seen anyone from the outside world began to see during World War II airplanes landing, airstrips being made, and more importantly to them, beer and all kinds of goodies coming out of the airplanes, they began to make clearings in the jungle. They made airplanes out of the, the materials at hand, bamboo and so forth. They built little refrigerators out of leaves and, and, and bark and whatnot. They moved back and forth between their airplanes and their refrigerators, making sounds that sounded to them like the airmen. And then they opened the refrigerators in hopes that beer would come out, but it didn't. And so the idea was, well, we haven't really done ours quite right, or the gods would have given us the beer. And so they would try again and again and again. And I think that's religion. That's what it is, isn't it? That's what we do when we do religion. And is it that there was a disconnect somewhere in the past that we once knew much more about this universe than we do, that we, that we are not a new civilization, but a remnant of an old one? And that's a very Lovecraftian idea as well. Very, yes. In this book, one of the things I thought was really a lot of fun was I think uh, that you managed to get every New Age conspiracy theory <laughs> <laughs> out there belief crammed into one plot and, and you rockets along. <laughs> well, yeah, I did, I did definitely fill a bushel basket with stuff like that. And, yeah, I'm always fascinated by these conspiracy theories and whatnot. And uh, having had a close encounter experience, I learned a lot about, you know, up close and personal about conspiracy theories because there's, there's something going on there that someone knows more about than I do, for example, or than anyone in the outside world does. But what it is is not clear at all. So there is a conspiracy of some sort there. And I'm, I was fascinated for years with the... Kennedy assassination, and the reason was my father, my uncle, one of my uncles, John Ben Shepard, was attorney general of Texas in the 50s, and then I believe he was chairman of the Democratic Party, actually, at the time of the assassination. And something odd happened in the family right before the assassination. I was at school at St. John's College in Maryland, and my father suddenly phoned me about Monday or Tuesday before the assassination and told me to immediately go to another uncle's house in Washington. He was a lobbyist at that time. And to stay there until further notice. And of course, being a young man full of beans, I didn't no more go there than the man in the moon because I hadn't been told why. So I stayed at school. A few days later, the Kennedy assassination occurred. Days later. And these guys, they knew Johnson. They They knew all of these people. So I would ask my father from time to time why he had said that, and he would just wave his hand and ignore me. He wouldn't say. Then I, um, I, I figured it out eventually. It's there's no conspiracy to it. Uh, I actually was uh, uh, working at the Texas Legislative Reference Library. I had worked on the John Connolly campaign, 
And I knew Connolly as a, a young man. By this time, I was back. I quit the school in Maryland, St. John's, and went to the University of Texas. I wanted to be closer to home because it was really a time of upheaval, and I was it was just nerve-wracking, frankly. So I was working there at the Texas Reg- Legislative Reference Library, and I had an opportunity to actually ask Connolly personally what happened. And he said, he, I said, he said, well, you know, we tried to get him to travel in an armored limousine because of uh, General Walker having spat on Adlai Stevenson at the Adolphus Hotel just a short time before. And there was so much hostility. We felt it was dangerous. Everyone in the Democratic Party did. But he wouldn't hear of it. And that was, of course, why my father had told me. Because my father knew this, too. He was, a big, he was involved in the Democrats as well. And so he was scared. They were all terribly scared for Kennedy, but there was no conspiracy there. They were just scared, and for good reason, as it turned out. Now, you mentioned that your father was part of the Democratic Party, and, and presumably you were, too. And, and, yeah, I was. And you, you also mentioned, that, um, mentioned on your website that you, you've long been a member of you know, left-wing politics, a trend towards the left. And I think that's fairly clear in this book because there's a character in there. I wouldn't uh, say I trend toward the left. I trend toward the human side of the <laughs> equation, not the economic side. It, well, I, I'm interested in a character in your book that you have a little fun with some a real-life person. Her name is Ann Coulter. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, I think Ann Coulter is such a dreadful, ambassador for her beliefs that she must be faking it. And that comes out in this book. I cannot believe that she seriously expects to gain any advocates from the positions she takes. In fact, she, I believe, is trying to drive people away from the far right. And I think that she is actually a plant from the far left. I think Ann Coulter is a Marxist. Well, that's a scary thought, almost as scary as what she becomes in your book. Um, well, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I had a lot of fun in my book. I, I, did, I don't recall if I took the Pope out. They were, oh, no, it was a, yeah, I had to make him into a cardinal. The editor, the publishers were nervous about the Pope being a giant lizard man, and so I had to, they thought it would be too <laughs> blasphemous, so I, I made him into a cardinal instead. Uh, and, and as these lizard men go, let's talk about everybody's favorite observer of lizard men, David Icke. Well, you know, David Icke, I've interviewed him on my radio program, and he's a sweet guy, and he's a very, very smart man. Only you have to wonder when someone will assert, although you can no longer find this on his website, it was there for years, that the Queen of England is actually a heavily disguised lizard person from another planet who does not have our best interests at heart, you have to wonder about their, their, their relationship to reality. And coming from me, that must sound absolutely hilarious. But, and, and as it should. <laughs> I'm laughing. <laughs> you should be, because God, my own relationship to reality is so iffy. But uh, uh, I, I would be delighted if there were heavily disguised lizard people running around here giving us trouble. That would be wonderful. I think anyone in the, in the arts should be very excited by that possibility. But frankly, I think it's fiction. Un- unfortunately so. <laughs> yes. 
Um, let's talk a little bit about this, uh, the soul aspect of, of your, of this book. Yes. Um, there, this, there's a science of the soul, and then there's also this notion that, um, when I was reading this book, I was also at the same time reading Graham Hancock's latest book, Supernatural. Oh, yes. Graham Hancock and I are good friends. And, and it struck me there were, there was a lot of, uh, synchronicity between the two books. Well, there is. Uh, I didn't read Supernatural. In fact, I think we might have been writing the two books more or less at the same time or close to it. But Supernatural is a wonderful book. What Graham does is basically he goes and he does all of the drugs. He figures out what the drugs would have been, would have, what drugs would have been available in various places during the Stone Age. And he does these drugs in an effort to see whether or not they generate hallucinatory effects that are similar to what you see in cave paintings and so forth uh, and rock art not the not the representational material but the abstract material that appears there so often and so consistently for so many thousands of years at so many different sites the little dots and things that you see and he finds that indeed he does have similar hallucinations of course the problem the weakness of it is that he, since he knew about this art beforehand, it seems possible that the hallucinations were directed not by the drugs, but by his knowledge. And you can't, there's no way to tell the difference, which he discusses in the book. But still, it's a wonderful adventure, an extraordinary adventure, and he also comes up with so much about the Stone Age. And you know, I, I'm so taken, do you know the Iceman Utsi that was found in the Tyrol? Right. Right. Well, he had tattooed on his skin acupuncture points. What does that mean? Well, he was 5,000 BC, and here he is with acupuncture points tattooed on his skin in Western Europe. What, is it, what could it possibly mean? Oh, it means there's a lot we don't know. Exactly. We don't <laughs> know. And that, that's, that's, that is where my writing is. And, and I have had in my life some truly extraordinary numinous experiences such as uh, uh, you speak of the soul, that have left me wondering whether or not there might actually be some sort of post-physical persistence. And I'm not willing to say that it doesn't exist. I I'm willing to say that it's improbable based on what we know about, for example, plasma physics and what would it be, the soul? In other words, I'm not a big believer in the supernatural. I think that there are a lot of natural phenomena that we don't understand, including what happened to me with the communion thing. The, the, and these, these are, it was obviously a, quite a real natural phenomena involving apparent little beings that would come to the cabin, even when we had dozens of people there, and would see them. I mean, people, it was not a, it was not just what it seemed to be in the book, a sort of one night's experience. It was years and years of contact with these people. But what were they? And what are these numinous experiences? Because these same people would turn into balls of light. They could fly. They could walk through walls. They had, in every respect, the appearance of mythological beings, except when they touched you. And, and this, it really fascinates me um, when you talk about this, the, uh, the similarity between what are perceived as aliens and what are perceived as fairies. Well, you see, this, you know, someone wrote a wonderful book, Jacques Vallée, who is a marvelous man and does much too little publicly now, uh, wrote a book some years ago called Passport to Magonia, 
which is, it, it influenced me heavily. I came across it right after I had the Close Encounter experience, and I was really struggling with, I had met some UFO people who believed I'd been uh, diddled with by aliens, and I had been raped. There was no question about it. The doctor found the lesions a, a, a few days later, so there was simply no question about it. It was it happened. I didn't put that in the book because it was too embarrassing. Unfortunately, I just mentioned the rectal probe, which became a cause celeb, became a big cause celeb and a big source of jokes. And I had the misfortune mm -hmm. to have been raped and then laughed at. And that is hard. That is not something you want to have repeated in your life ever again. Uh, if, if it had been a woman who had been claiming a rape, she certainly wouldn't have been laughed at, but except perhaps by the police. Uh, uh, but I know what it's like to really suffer and then find people to find it amusing. It's horrible. In any case, Passport to Magonia goes all the way back really to the beginning of, of recorded history and traces the same type of event again and again and again and again. So what does it tell me? It tells me that we are not fully cognizant of the capabilities, function, or intent of the human mind yet. And this, after all, this mind of ours is the most recent and by far, as far as we now know, the most extraordinary evolution of anything that has occurred on this planet and probably on many, many planets. So what might it be what might be emerging from it? Or what might it be capable of doing? This disconnect that we talked about a little, a few moments ago between parallel universes, maybe it's not really such a disconnect. Maybe this mind has got the capability of drawing things in from, from other universes and in such universes, if, if we are correct, there is, reality isn't, isn't simply something that is is contained in our universe. It's more like a wave front moving forward and always expanding, and all possibilities are being constantly fulfilled. Uh, if the many worlds theory is correct, and there's strong mathematical evidence and now phys evidence in physics that it is, then of course what happened to me was real. And I, I was somehow drawing it in from, or the other side of the coin is maybe someone, maybe these people in a parallel universe have technology that, ena that enables them to synchronize with us and to pop in here from time to time. And maybe they have been trying for thousands of years. Or maybe they're just tourists who come from time to time to have fun looking around at us. Who knows? Teenage pranksters. Pranksters. Yeah, I'm very interested in teenage pranksters from another planet. You're going to be hearing more about that in my life. <laughs> I, I have some ideas about that. I, I, that sounds like fun. I'll look forward to that. Yeah. <clears throat> We've been speaking with Whitley Strieber. His new book is 2012, The War for Souls. Thank you for joining me, Whitley. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>